0: good morning thanks for joining us for TCC at home together I hope you're doing well this morning and enjoying uh, taking this in uh, at your home uh, as pastor Chris mentioned uh, in the beginning of our service we're meeting at home this week especially uh, in the morning because we want to encourage you to make it a point to be a part of our Sunday evening gathering as we celebrate uh, Christmas and um, you should certainly should come to see whatever Christmas flair uh, that pastor Chris has to bring uh, but but more, more importantly, uh, to, to really celebrate Christmas. Some of our kids are gonna be singing and uh, sharing some scriptures they've been working on memorizing, and, um, and we're gonna be able to, to sing some of the Christmas hymns that are rich uh, in our faith and, um, and just hear from God's word, take the Lord's Supper together. Uh, it'll be, I pray, a sweet and refreshing, uh, encouraging time, and I hope uh, you'll be there. Uh, today, we're, we're going to be wrapping up Uh, our sermon series entitled Unexpected Christmas. This series has taken us through uh, this period of Advent. Uh, Of course, we have now uh, just five days until Christmas Day as we celebrate the birth of our Savior and continue to uh, reflect on and long for Christ and, and grow in our anticipation and our hope for His return. You see, as we celebrate Advent today as Christians, we celebrate advent in between the two advents of Christ the the first advent of Christ we look back to that's what we're doing as we look at Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2 but we live today having um, uh, having experienced and, and and trusting in what Christ did and accomplished in his first advent but with an anticipation and an eagerness for what Christ will do when he comes again in his second advent and returns to take his people to be with him and to make all things new. That's where we find ourselves. That's where we're living. We are living with a eagerness and anticipation for Christ's return, for his second advent. And, and today we're going to we're going to talk about hope, uh, unexpected hope that jumps out at us as we look at the story of Simeon and Anna at the end of Luke chapter 2. Uh, but as I think about hope, I couldn't help but think about um, just being a kid and, and waiting around for presents uh, at Christmas. And, and now as a parent, and I see this with my own children. It's um, at times comical to see just the the eagerness and the zeal and the anticipation, especially uh, as the presents start to get wrapped and put out under the tree. You could just see the anticipation building and uh, the, the the things that they've asked for, the things that they're hoping for. All of these things are are playing out before you. It's like there's just this pent-up angst and expectation of what's to come. And and you know the older that you get uh, typically you you start to find out more easily uh, it seems what you're going to get for christmas and uh, and so sometimes the surprise isn't there, but the anticipation of of perhaps what's going uh, to come on Christmas Day is still there for you and uh, I know even in our own family I, Emily and I love to just try hard to work to surprise each other with uh, with our gifts each year uh, and and yet, every Christmas, whether you're a kid or whether you're an adult, leaves you with this, at times, disappointment. One, because materialism can never uh, fill the void that our hearts uh, ultimately have. Uh, it's never never the answer just to get more stuff, even when you get the coolest thing and everything that you want. It always uh, loses a little bit of its sparkle and its shine, uh, whether it's within the first hour or within the first Week, uh, It always leaves us with this sense of wanting more. There's some sense that what we were hoping for doesn't always pan out, and sometimes what we were hoping for we don't get, but sometimes what we are hoping for we get, and it disappoints. You see, I, I think when we think about hope, the most important question for us is to ask ourselves, what are we hoping in? And then in turn, how is our hope shaping the way that we live? Because If you put your hope in something, it's something that lies in the future, but what you're hoping in in the future should have an impact on the way that you live in the present. And that's what we're going to see as we look at Luke chapter 2, and uh, we see the story of Simeon and Anna. Uh, If you you have your Bible, I'd love for you to read along with me as we walk through this passage, and then we're going to step back and say, okay, uh, as we look at God's Word, What does it mean to hope in Jesus, and how does our hope in Jesus change the way that we live? So it says this in Luke chapter 2, verse 22. When the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, being Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it was written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, they brought a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons, And now it says, as they got there, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. We don't know anything about Simeon other than this, that he was a man who was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when his Uh, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to, to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took up Jesus in his arms and he blessed God. And he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what he had said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, particularly points to Mary, and he said, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And then this aside, where he addresses Mary, and he says, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. But then we not only see Simeon, we see Anna introduced, and it says, There was a prophetess. Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple. Most likely was near 100 years old. She did not depart from the temple. It was her practice daily to be in the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And the, at, coming up at that very hour, like Simeon, she began to give thanks to God. And she saw Jesus and she knew that she was seeing the fulfillment of God's promises because she she began to to give thanks and to speak of him, to speak of Jesus to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Pray with me for a moment. Father, I pray uh, as we unpack your word, as we open it up, uh, that you would open our hearts up to hear your word. Uh, God, that you would, uh, you would allow your word to penetrate our hearts, to convict us uh, perhaps of sin, uh, to convict us of our need for, uh, to put our trust in you. Uh, God, to, to help us to see perhaps where we are placing our hope in things that are inadequate uh, and ultimately uh, not, secure, not secure. And Lord, would you today help us to hope in Jesus and allow our hope in Jesus to change the way that we live. Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So as we look at this passage and we think about uh, where to find our hope, just like Anna and Simeon, when they saw Jesus, what what you see unfolding is, is hope fulfilled. What they were hoping in of God's promises coming to pass and the sending of the Messiah, the Savior, the one who would bring salvation. And we're going to talk about what that looks like here in just a moment. But when they saw Jesus, they saw that this was the one whom God had promised. It was not revealed to them by their own ingenuity, but it says by the Holy Spirit it was revealed to them that Jesus was the promised Messiah and Savior, and their hope was fulfilled. They were a people marked by hope. Their hope had uh, changed the way that they lived, And, and now we are getting this glimpse. It's almost like a snapshot of what will come one day in the future. When we too see with our own eyes Jesus coming in the clouds and our hope is fulfilled, Simeon and Anna are a foretaste of what awaits every believer who puts their hope in Jesus because everyone who hopes in Jesus will not be put to shame, God's word says, but, but we will see and experience the fulfillment of what we hope in. When Jesus returns and Simeon and Anna show us uh, just a glimpse, a snapshot, Of what it's like for hope to be fulfilled and how that can change the way we live today. I want us to see three uh, truths about Jesus uh, as we look at this passage. As you uh, think about this story, it no doubt shows us Simeon and Anna as the uh, maybe primary figures that are responding to Jesus, but it's what they're responding to Jesus about that I think is so essential for us to get and not miss. This morning. And the first thing that I want us to see is that Jesus brings salvation to all people. You see, Simeon knew when he saw Jesus, he he blessed God and said in verse 28 and, and now into 29, He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you are preparing in the presence of all people. When Simeon saw Jesus, he said, I'm seeing the promised salvation that God has prepared in the presence of all people. Jesus is the one who brings salvation. But but notice there's there's something really unique and interesting that's taking place. There's kind of a bookend uh, with the statements of Simeon and Anna. In verse 20, 25, it says that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And then flip down, if you will, with me to Anna, who also, it says... Uh, who was devout and worshiping the temple nine day? She began to speak of everyone who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Uh, this is kind of a bookend statement: the consolation of Israel and the redemption of Jerusalem. And in a way, what what you see uh, in these statements is Simeon and Anna referring back to Isaiah. If you go look at Isaiah forty. Uh, God promises comfort to his people, people who were in exile, longing for God to uh, to deliver them, to bring them out of exile and back to the land, which it wasn't just about the land, but it was being with God in the land. And they had come back and and Ezra, and Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel, they had rebuilt the temple and all of these things were taking place. We were just looking at this this week with our Advent blocks with our kids, But but that rebuilt temple wasn't wasn't what everybody was expecting, what everybody was anticipating. God didn't come and bless it. God's presence wasn't fully there. They were still waiting. And here's Simeon and Anna, old in their years, waiting for the consolation of Israel, for God to come and comfort his people from their past hurt and loss because of exile and because of sin, and come to redeem and rescue them from what they presently were in bondage to, to uh, as we looked even at Zechariah's statement, though they were under the thumb of the Romans, it was ultimately under the judgment of God that they found themselves waiting waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Jesus comforts his people, the consolation of Israel, by delivering them from their sin, the redemption of Jerusalem. Jesus comforts his people by delivering us from bondage to our sin. If there's a longing in our heart today, for something that this world hasn't been able to fulfill. Could it be that the Christmas gift we need the most this year be Christ, who would be our consolation and who would be our redemption, who would comfort us, help us make sense of the pain and the hurt and the loss that we've experienced because of our own rebellion and because of the brokenness of this world, And who would show us that what we need most, most fundamentally, most foundationally, is to be made right with him. To be delivered from our sins. Jesus brings comfort to his people by delivering them from their sin. But we also see in the statement um, uh, of Of Simeon, the Nunc dimittis uh, that's known in Latin, that uh, is defined here with Simeon's statement, where he blesses the Lord, and, and particularly in verse 31 and 32, that I want to see. He's prepared the salvation for all people. Verse 32 notice this distinction a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. What Simeon is doing is he's saying, just like we saw Isaiah 40 in, this, in the first statements of consolation and redemption, he's now pointing to the servant in Isaiah. and Isaiah 42, just flip over to Isaiah 42 with me if you would. Listen to how Isaiah speaks of the servant of the Lord who is to come. He says that, I am the Lord, I have called you, this is verse 6, uh, in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and I will keep you, speaking, this is the cu- the servant of the Lord whom God will uphold and whom his soul delights, it says in verse 1, now listen to this, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind and to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison of those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord and that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise, the carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass and behold, God says, new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell them to you. Isaiah 49, uh, speaking once more of the servant of the Lord, how it says, is it too light of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Jesus fulfills the promises of God to Israel. And when you see the servant in Isaiah, at times there's this question of, is the servant speaking of Israel or is it speaking of Messiah? And what Jesus shows us is that Jesus represents Israel and because he fulfills all that God commands and promises to Israel, through faith in him, Israel finds fulfillment of all that God promised. But it's not just for Israel. Jesus is the glory to his people Israel, fulfilling God's promises, but he's a light to the Gentiles, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Jesus brings salvation to all by fulfilling God's promises to Israel. Jesus brings salvation to all by fulfilling God's promises to Israel to be the servant who would come, fulfilling God's promises and being a light to the nations this is always god's plan to bring salvation to all people through fulfilling his promises to israel and how would this jesus this messiah that we put our hope in him how can he bring fulfillment to all that god promised for israel and bring light to the gentiles how does it come about how is this servant promised in isaiah going to do these things well isaiah also tells us that the servant who will be a light to the Gentiles and who will fulfill God's promised covenant uh, to Israel. It says that he's going to come. And no one's going to believe what they've heard from us in Isaiah 53, and whom the Lord and the arm of the Lord has been revealed. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. And we like street sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that was before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living. Stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He he shall see his offspring and he, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands and out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus brings salvation to all people by fulfilling God's promises to Israel. And at the center of that fulfillment is that Jesus would come fulfilling all of God's righteous requirements, walking in obedience to God's law. And then he would be hung on a cross, sinless, but as a sacrifice and as a substitute, taking our place paying for our sin, bearing the judgment that we deserve. And they would take him down from the cross and they would lay him in a rich man's tomb. Joseph of Arimathea, the Gospels tell us. But on the third day, he would rise from the dead. Jesus brings salvation to all people. And he does th- so through his death on the cross. We see his fulfillment to Israel uh, of, of all of God's promises and righteous requirements, even all the way down to how Joseph and Mary go to the temple for purification after his birth, according to the Old Testament law, according to the law of Moses, they had to make purification for being unclean through pregnancy and Joseph through his participation within it. And they waited a certain amount of days and then they brought a sacrifice. And we see that their sacrifice was one that, that God made a, an accommodation for those who couldn't bring a lamb. He made an accommodation basically for the poor. That's Joseph and Mary. And they bring these turtle doves or two young pigeons and they make a sacrifice all in keeping with the law because Jesus would fulfill the righteous requirements of the law on his way to the cross to pay for our sin. Jesus brings salvation to all people. That's what Simeon and Anna were rejoicing in when they saw Jesus. They were rejoicing that that God was doing what he said he would do. They were getting to see the beginning of it. I don't know if they could fully comprehend all that was to take place. But they knew that God's promises were coming to pass as they looked at Jesus. And all of his promises that he began to fulfill, we eagerly await for him to bring to completion when he returns again. Jesus brings salvation to all people, and as we wait for him, we're trying to tell as many people as we can, just like Anna. Anyone who would listen, she was telling them about the redemption for Jerusalem, a redemption for Jerusalem that meant salvation for all nations. Jesus brings salvation to all people. But we also see in Simeon's statement that Jesus divides all people. Oh, Christmas isn't isn't just about the, the sweet baby Jesus in the manger. Christmas tells us that the sweet baby Jesus in the manger from his very beginning was dividing people. The Magi were searching from afar, looking for the king of Israel. But Herod was hating nearby and killing all the two year olds and under in the region near Bethlehem. Even from his beginning and his birth, Jesus was dividing all people. In in verse 34 Simeon says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. We know throughout the scriptures that God tells us that that Jesus is a, a stumbling block to many people. Many people will stumble over Jesus. Simeon is telling us many people will be divided over Jesus. He will expose the hearts of people. You see, the reality of Jesus is that Jesus doesn't just come, but when he comes, we must we are confronted with his coming. We must respond to his coming. We must answer for his first coming and, and be ready for his second coming. And, and when, you, when you come to Jesus, if you identify with Jesus, you could, you could break it down in two ways. Jesus divides all people in the sense that if you identify with Jesus, there's going to be conflict among us. Simeon tells us that Jesus will divide us. The early Christians, uh, just take uh, the early Christians, for example, as they came to identify with Jesus, they were seen with suspicion because they didn't fit into the norms of Roman society. They didn't go to the festivals. They wouldn't honor the gods of Rome. They wouldn't participate in the things that the culture uh, was so accustomed to. And they had this pesky uh, belief, the exclusivity of belief in Christ that salvation was by grace through faith in Christ alone. And this claim alone made Christians not only suspect, but it made Christians a threat, a threat to the social order. Historians would tell us that that Christians were uh, disinherited, that, that they were excluded from jobs and that they were cut off from certain relationships and businesses and physically abused and even imprisoned and later in the Roman Empire killed because of their profession of faith in Christ. But at At the core, I think the most offensive thing about Christians, the early Christians, wasn't just the threat to the social order, but it was the very confronting of our own personal sensibilities. Because even in Jesus' birth, even at Christmas, we are reminded that we cannot save ourselves. Have you thought about that? That's what Christmas tells us. You can't save yourself. It has to come from outside of us. Yeah, you could, you know, sometimes we, we, as we get older, we may get a gift for ourselves, right? Like we want something, so we get it for us. Uh, we We can get a gift for ourselves. So there's one gift that you can't get for yourself. That's the gift of salvation. That gift only comes from outside of you, through somebody else giving it to you. And the good news is that Christ has done everything that's needed for your salvation if you'll receive his gift. God himself had to become a baby and go to the cross and rise from the dead. That's what Christmas tells us. That's how messed up we are. That's how messed up you are. That's how messed up I am. But it's also how loved we are because God was willing to come as a baby, to go to the cross, to rise from the dead and one day come again. Christmas level's honest with us. No one wants to hear that they're not Good enough on their own that we were bought with a price, as Paul would say. But to all who would hear it, it changes them. It divides all people, those who identify with Christ and those who don't. And yet, as I say that, all of this, I recognize that often Christians have been the cause at times of the most offense, not so much what they believe, but actually how they conduct themselves. It's been our failure to live like Christ that's caused such offense. Through our own hypocrisy, we create conflict. And this has been the sad reality of the church at times throughout history and even today. Whether it's the history of racism in our country, the covering up of sexual abuses the excuse of uh, excusing of greed and financial malpractice among pastors and televangelists. We have done much to bring shame upon ourselves. And for that we should repent and we should walk in humility. But one thing we should never apologize for is by identifying with Christ, knowing that when we identify with Christ, if you follow Christ, you're not going to be liked by everyone. I think sometimes as Christians, we think that if we are faithful enough as Christians, then everyone will see how awesome Jesus is and how good Christianity is, and they'll just get it, and they'll want to follow Jesus. I think there is a winsomeness and an attraction in the way that we live. And yet at the same time, the man that we follow, the Savior that we follow, did everything was right, didn't sin a bit. And there was a crowd outside of Jerusalem yelling, crucify him, crucify him, give us a criminal rather than the one who said he's come to save us. And if you can't see your face in the crowd, you might be missing something. When we follow Christ... We're going to be opposed. Success in the Christian life is not winning a popularity contest or a culture war. It's faithfully following Christ, inviting others into life in Him and seeking to reflect His kingdom as we pass through our time on this earth. That's what it means. If we follow Christ, we're seeking above everything to faithfully follow him, to invite others into the life that's found in him, to reflect his kingdom in the way that we live on this earth. Not living for ourselves, but living for him. Tim Keller said, The manger at Christmas means that if you live like Jesus, there won't be many rooms for you in a lot of ends. Something for us to think about. Conflict among us, but also conflict within us. Jesus reveals, uh, Simeon says, the hearts of many. You see, uh, at, about, at a foundational level, when we think about how Jesus exposes conflict, it's primarily conflict within us that we should think about. How does Jesus um, reveal the hearts of many? How does he, uh, what does conflict within us look like? Well, conflict over who Jesus is. Could he really be the Son of God? Could he really be fully man and fully God? Did he really say the things that the Bible says he said? Did he really die on a cross, not as an example, but as a, as a Savior dying in our place for our sins? And then did he really rise from the dead? Was that just the story that his followers made up? Can I really wrap my mind around Jesus being the Creator and the Savior, that I'm to repent of my sins and to trust in him? And then we, we sometimes have conflict within us over what Jesus says as well, like I mentioned. Did he really say these things? Is the Bible really true? Can I really trust these things? And then how Jesus calls us to live, right? If we, if we understand who he said he was and, and he did what he, the Bible says he did, then what does that mean for the way that you and I respond to him and the way that we live? You see, there's conflict within us. 1 Corinthians 1, verses twenty two through 25, Paul says, For the Jews demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, uh, when Jesus comes, he exposes our hearts and he actually challenges the Greeks and the Jews at the point of the thing that they most question. The Jews demand signs, the Greeks seek wisdom. Jesus said, What sign can I give you, but that I'll go to the cross and die and rise again? And and the greatest display of power isn't raw strength domineering others, but it's in weakness laying down your life, even for those who hate you. Jesus confronts us, creating conflict within us, causing us to ask ourselves, how will we respond to Jesus? Jesus, as he, Simeon, as he says this to Mary, says that uh, even a sword will pierce through her own soul, now, we know that Mary, later on in the Gospels, began to question what Jesus was saying, thought maybe he, would, he was missing something, whether he wasn't the Savior, the Messiah she was expecting, or maybe he was just struggling to believe that he really could be this, that he was really going to bring salvation uh, to Israel and to all people, and she questioned but we also know that as she was there when Jesus was crucified the agony and the pain of watching the the son that she was entrusted to raise to be abandoned and um and mocked and crucified on the cross she watched this all unfold but we all are like mary a little bit struggling sometimes what is jesus really saying is that what he's saying Am am I really going to surrender to him? Am Am I really going to follow him no matter what? Did he really die for my sins on the cross and rise from the dead? We have this conflict within, but he offers peace. Creates conflict within us all, but he offers peace to all who would trust in him. You see, peace is found in the repentance of sins. This was the message of John the Baptist. Prepare your heart for the the Lord to come by repenting of your sin. When Jesus showed up and he began to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, he said, repent and believe. Turn from your sin and trust in me. The Bible says if anyone confesses their sin that God is faithful and just and he will forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Repentance is the pathway to peace. When we think about peace with God and peace within our own soul, the only way we can have uh, resting peace and and secure peace is is not by trying to create it ourselves, but by turning from our own way and trusting in Christ. Peace is found in repentance of sin, and peace is found in submission of God. Because as you turn from your own way, you yield to God and you say your way. That's where peace is found. That's, that's what we ultimately see Mary do, as she, as she uh, even in her unbelief, would, would say, I-, I believe, and would submit herself in following Jesus. We see it in, in Simeon and Anna, who, who throughout their whole life, they were marked by a submission to God, and they had found peace with God. As Simeon would say, as, as he saw Jesus, he said, now you're letting your servant Depart in peace, I'm seeing the salvation that you have brought. A a peace that comes through submission to God. A peace that comes through repentance of sin. Jesus divides us all, but he holds out peace to everyone who would trust in him. And it's that peace with God, being made right with God, that that gives us the, the third point that I want to press home to us, is that Jesus is the hope of all who trust in him see, when we have been made right with God, when we have peace with God, now there's a, a hope that is secure for us. What is, what is hope? We all hope, right? We talked about it, hoping for what comes on Christmas, hoping what lies ahead in 2021, hoping for uh, what's ahead. All, all of us hope in something, Christian hope is the confident expectation of what is to come based on the promises and character of God. Let me say that again. The Christian hope is the confident expectation of what is to come based on the promises and character of God. It's grounded in God's word. It is secured by Jesus' resurrection. And it's marked by a waiting for Jesus' return. That's Christian hope, grounded in God's word, secured by Jesus' resurrection, and marked by waiting for Jesus to return. And everyone who trusts in Jesus, of repentance and submission to him, has a hope that's secure. That's what we see in Simeon and Anna. What, What marks their lives was that they lived with a hope in God. So we ask ourselves, what difference then does hope make? What difference does hope make in our lives? If we rightly locate our hope and we place our hope in Jesus and His uh, completed work and His first coming and His uh, promised second coming, what difference does that make? I I, want to suggest two things that we see both in our passage and throughout the Scriptures. The first is that hope produces faithful endurance. Hope produces faithful endurance in the life of the believer what would lead Simeon and Anna Anna tells us as events in her age and most likely Simeon is is older as well to be righteous and devout to be marked by a devotion to God praying night and day fasting going to the temple waiting for the consolation of Israel what would what would lead them to that type of faithful endurance but hope hope the confident expectation of what's to come based on God's character and his promises. It leads to faithful endurance. We're a church plant that's young. So in many ways, we are perhaps weak on faithful endurance. In some ways, we're uh, we're earning our chops right now as we walk through perhaps one of the greatest uh, struggles of a year in the lifetime uh, of many of us. And yet as a church, we want to be a multi-generational church. And I I want to commend the the Simeons and the Annas, the faithful men and women who have followed God through the ups and downs of life. God sees you. God rejoices over you. As a church, we want to be a church that's not only filled uh, with Mary's and Joseph's who are trusting God in the midst of all kinds of uncertainty, But we want to be filled with Simeons and Annas who have been faithfully following God through the thick and thin, through the up and down, trusting in and hoping in God. And and we we want these kind of men and women in our church. We want to invite you uh, to be a part of what God is doing here. But hope produces a faithful endurance that allows us to persevere through struggles and through challenges and through trials and through suffering. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. He's talking about what's to come. He goes through and he begins to talk about how all of creation has been subject to futility, but it's waiting for redemption. It says in hope, the creation itself will be set free from bondage to corruption and obtain a freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly, listen, as we wait eagerly for adoptions as son, the redemptions of our body for in this hope we are saved. And now this is a hope that is seen. And excuse me, now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is what we wait for as believers, for for Christ to come again, to make all things new, to restore what's been broken, trusting in Him, to bring about the completion of redemption so that when we go through current, present struggles and trials, we look at them and don't say, wow, this is nothing, but we see the suffering and the trials that we face, and we have a hope that allows us to faithfully endure in the midst of it, knowing the glory that awaits us. This is what marks the Christian life. Christmas gives us hope to live in a messed up world. Christmas gives us hope to live with broken relationships. Christmas gives us hope that everything that's not working now in us and around us doesn't have the final say. And hope isn't just an encouragement to believers in the midst of suffering. But it also prevents believers from being content with present circumstances. You see, hope isn't isn't just allowing us to look beyond the present moment to what's ahead, allowing us to faithfully endure. But if I could say it another way, not only does hope produce faithful endurance, but hope produces faith-filled living. Hope produces faith-filled living. It's It's hope that endures, but it's also, in a sense, if you could look at it maybe from another angle, I'm not trying to say that this is radically different from the first, but hope produces faith-filled living in the sense that it's not only allowing us to walk through suffering knowing that that what's on the other side is is for our good and and God's glory, but it's also a hope that in the midst of maybe uh, dry seasons and difficult times and uh, your job isn't what you want, school is harder than you think, your marriage is rockier than you want parenting isn't what you had hoped for. The pandemic isn't over. When all of that's going on, it's not just a grin and bear it, but it's a a living in the midst of it with a faith that that lifts you up, with a faith that fills you with purpose, believing and seeing that God is doing something right now. That's what hope does. Hope produces faith-filled living. Listen to the way God's word says it in other places. In 2 Peter 3, Uh, 11 through 13 he says since these things are to be dissolved since he's talking about uh, the new heavens and the new earth he says what sort of people ought we to be in in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of god we ought to live holy lives in the present because we know what's to come because of our hope and what we wait for holiness That's that's what faith-filled living looks like. Growing righteous and devout as Simeon was. Being marked by our devotion to the Lord. Being marked by worship and fasting and prayer. Things that maybe seem strange to us, which tells us that maybe we are strange, uh, that the the scriptures are unfamiliar to us because this is what God's calling us to be and to do. Faith-filled living in 1 Peter 4, 7-9 through 9 says, The end of all things is at hand. What we wait for is coming, is drawing near. Therefore, Peter says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Then don't miss this. Our hope in what's to come leads us to live in this way. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love, love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Our hope produces a faith-filled living that looks like holiness and godliness, yes, but also that looks like Christian community, that looks like hospitality, that looks like loving one another, that looks like bearing one another's burdens, that looks like Christians caring for one another, pursuing Christ's purposes in each other's lives, walking together through thick and thin, walking together through struggles and trials and suffering. As we look in the other parts of God's word, I was challenged looking in 1 John, thinking about <clears throat> thinking about this statement in 1 John chapter 3. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children, and now, and what we will be... Um, <clears throat> Uh, has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, when he comes, this is what our hope is in, we shall be like him. And because of this, we shall see him. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And he goes on to talk about how if we are in Christ, we can't make a practice of sinning, that our lives can't be marked by unrepentant sin. We can't get comfortable with sin, whether it's internal or external. And he goes on in verse 10 and says this, By this it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. By this it's revealed what you hope in. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. There's always the vertical and the horizontal that measures and marks the life of a christian we can't be comfortable with sin we can't be marked by practicing unrighteousness nor can we be comfortable with hating one another hope produces faith-filled living and 1 Corinthians 15, 58, as Paul talks through the resurrection and uh, the hope and the confidence that we can have in the resurrection, and thus Jesus' return, he, he makes this statement as an application at the end. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And this is what this is what stirs me up to put one foot in front of the other, whether it's in ministry or whether it's in my life, is that my life isn't going to be in vain, that my ministry isn't going to be be in vain, whether it's your ministry to a friend or to a coworker, to a family member or to a child or within our church or within our community, within our nation, around the world, whatever it is, what gives us hope that nothing is in vain is that Jesus is risen and that he's coming again. Hope produces faith-filled living where we put one foot in front of the other, trusting God in the present, knowing and being confident about what awaits us in the future based on the promises and the character of God. What are you hoping in? And how is your hope changing the way you live? Let's think on that as we approach Christmas Day. And let's renew our hope in Christ. And let's grow in allowing hope to produce faithful endurance. And hope to produce faith-filled living. Let's pray.